You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here. And it's a great delight this evening to welcome you for another in our long, long series of talks with the Canadian Art Foundation. And I can't remember how many years we've been doing this. It, it, you know, is it 12? But it's been a wonderful series and a really happy partnership. So tonight we have um, Vishaka Desai. Um, delighted to welcome you here. And tonight, the Canadian Art Foundation have added another partner into the mix, the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. So I welcome you here as well. There will be a chance for a, a Q&A after the talk. So please, I would now like to invite Anne Webb, who is, I'm going to get it right this time. Last time I called her the editor, and she's not. She's the publisher of the Canadian Art Magazine and the executive director of the Canadian Art Foundation. So Anne. Thank you so much, Jillian. It's always our pleasure, as Jillian said, for us to collaborate with our uh, colleagues here at the AGO. We're always delighted to be here. Um, as a national organization that reaches across the country to promote the understanding and appreciation of visual art, it gives us at the Canadian Art Foundation great pleasure to come together with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada's National Conversation on Asia and its sponsors to present the Asia Contemporary Series. I would like to extend our thanks to BMO Financial Group for their commitment to this program and to all the sponsors for their support. I would also like to acknowledge Hank Bull, multimedia artist and arts administrator extraordinaire, for bringing our organizations together and for being the creative force behind this project. This project started over a glass of wine and conversation after the Vancouver Gallery Hop in 2010. And I always tell <clears throat> our supporters at BMO that what they do in support of the arts reaches beyond their wildest expectations. And as everything in the art world, everything starts with a conversation. So thank you, Hank. And I'd like to acknowledge Christine Shaw, who is our program an outreach manager at Canadian Art Foundation, and my colleague Jill Price, the executive director of the Asia Pacific Foundation. We've had a great time putting this together. Um, I, like you, look forward to hearing Vishaka Desai's talk this evening, and welcome, Vishaka. And um, to introduce Vishaka this evening, please help me welcome Yuen Pao Wu, the president and CEO of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let me start by saying what a pleasure it is for the Asian Pacific Foundation of Canada to be working with the Canadian Art Foundation and to be at this uh, fabulous facility, the AGO. It's been a pleasure working with Gillian, you and your team, and uh, we look forward to coming back for another lecture early in 2013. It's also a pleasure to see so many new faces. Uh, the foundation, of course, uh, does many activities in Toronto. Uh, we have a clientele, if you will, that uh, might, might be described as the usual suspects, and it's really delighted, delightful 
to uh, see that we have reached out to a different kind of audience tonight. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, the rise of Asia is one of the most compelling stories in contemporary history. Uh, it is a story that is told most often in economic and political terms, whether we're discussing the global recession or the importance of uh, Chinese investment overseas, or we're talking about uh, territorial conflicts in the South China Sea. But the story of the rise of Asia can also be told in many other ways. And we felt that the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada that this story about the rise of Asia has to be told in all of its multifaceted dimensions, which explains the origins of this speaker series on the importance of contemporary Asian art and its intersection with the rise of Asia as a global political and economic force. I cannot think of a better person to help us think through the intersection of the importance of contemporary Asian art and the rise of Asia than someone like Dr. Vishaka Desai. Dr. Desai, uh, I've come to know Vishaka uh, through her role at the Asia Society in New York, where first she was the uh, director of the Asia Society Museum and then later the president and CEO. Under her leadership at the Asia Society, she presided over a very rapid expansion of its programming as well as its physical facilities. And in particular, uh, the establishment of uh, an office in Houston with a very, very vibrant program and uh, something particularly close to my heart, the building of a, a museum and conferencing and meeting facility in Hong Kong, transforming the old armory premises in Admiralty. You may know the the, the location near the Conrad Hotel into just a stunning uh, exhibition and meeting space that has already uh, made a major mark in Hong Kong society. Uh, Vishaka left the Age Society very recently after many, many years of service and she is currently the Senior Advisor for Global Policy Programs at the Guggenheim Foundation. And on the 1st of January 2013, she takes a new position in addition to her role at the Guggenheim, where she will serve as special advisor to the president of Columbia University on global strategy. She is also to be appointed professor in the School of International Relations at Columbia University, where she will be developing a program on the intersection of culture and policy, uh, which is, of course, ladies and gentlemen, precisely the topic of our lecture tonight. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Vishaka Desai. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Pao, for that more than generous introduction. Um, I must say, to have three different stellar organizations coming together to organize this series says a lot about all of your commitment in Canada to understanding the part of the world that many of us have dedicated our lives to. Some of us, of course, were born there, so it's not a surprise. But I, too, have to say that you can always leave it to Hank Bull. He has a way of connecting people, ideas, and places that is unlike anything else you would find 
we first met, I believe it had to be more than 15 years ago. And I also have very special feeling for Canada because one of the very first contemporary art exhibitions we did at the Asia Society that really kind of shook up the art scene in New York actually came to Vancouver. And it is that partnership that I really cherish a great deal. When Hank called me some months ago, I was in the throes of thinking about my life in a slightly different direction. And he said, you know, Pao and I really think you should do this talk, which is really about the economic rise of Asia and contemporary art. And I said, yeah, sounds good, no problem. So he gave me a title. And the title was A Mouthful, Asian Art in Global Context, the Role of Contemporary Art in the Rapidly Changing Economies of China, uh, he said, of Asia. As I began to prepare this talk, I said, that's a mouthful, and it's a lot of stuff. I don't think we can do this in one hour. So I'd like a minor alteration in this title. And so title should be really Asian Art in a Global Context, Contemporary Arts, in the rapidly rising economies of China and India. So we're going to primarily focus on those two behemoths of civilizations that now are coming online. Even then, it's a pretty big, tall order. Because, as Pao suggested, the idea here is to really look at the development of contemporary art in these two countries in the context of their rapidly rising economies and the political dimension of what it means. All of this I would like to do in a kind of a four-part segment. And the reason to think about this is to recognize that often in a kind of a broad sense in the art world, it's understood that as economic power of a country comes online, the artistic establishment and the power also begins to be recognized and it follows. The economic power is followed by the artistic power. And partly because people use the example of post-war United States, that it was really the rise of rapid economic, economic uh, transformation of the United States that also shifted the cultural center, the artistic center from Europe to America. So we want to kind of think, at, think about whether this always follows and how do we make sense of that premise in the context of globalization that we're all part of today where there is also the rapid connectivity among cultures and places and people and the role of artists becomes even more important and different than perhaps before. So that's kind of, I'm putting that straw man out there for us to really think about how do these intersections work as we go forward. So the structure of the talk is really in four parts. First part is to look at the economic rise of China and India and its awareness in the West. The second part is really the inter internal political awareness of this new power and how Chinese and Indian governments deal with it. Where do they come out? The third part is to really look at the artistic developments in these two countries in the last 30 years, roughly more or less concurrent with the economic rise of the two places, and also to look at the external perceptions of the rapid development in the 
contemporary art world. The last section I'd like to focus on is really about the global presence of contemporary Chinese and Indian artists today and what it might mean for us to understand how the intersection of economic politics and art would work today and perhaps going forward. I realize that this is big topics. Each one of them could actually be used for a one-hour lecture. And so I apologize right from the beginning that I will disappoint some of you almost all the time. I want to also recognize that because of the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, some of you may come from the policy side of things, some of you may come from the art side of things. So I'm going to actually ask you, how many of you think of yourself as coming from the art world? Raise your hands. Yeah, that's a lot of you, okay. How many of you are from the non-art world? And how many of you think you belong to both? Okay, this is good, this is good. Um, so my other apology is that some of you who come from the art world, some of the things I say to you will not be news to you. Those of you who come from the policy or the business world, some of the things I say to you will not be news to you. But my goal is to really connect all of you together. So uh, let's start with this idea of the awareness of the economic rise of Asia, especially China and India. It's, and I also want to emphasize that this is really a conversation and I want to take you on a journey to explore some of these ideas. I don't have definitive answers. So I hope that when we come back to the question answer period, we can embellish this conversation further with your thoughts as well. So I think it's fair to say that in the economic development of China and India, almost everybody would recognize that Deng Xiaoping post 79, China begins to take off. But it's fair and important to recognize that really the real development of China in the economic sense that really takes off is, in fact, in the 1990s. In India, up until 1991, here is a democracy, very much a closed economy. It's not until Manmohan Singh, then the finance minister, under the prime minister of India, Narsiha Rao, uh, who really begins to liberalize economy and the country opens up starting in 1991. However, again, in terms of how people write about these two places, really begins to shift sometime in the first part of the 21st century. Some people in India have said that it all had to do with the Y2K problem, that India would not be in the picture were it not for the software industry trying to solve the problem of computer glitches that could occur at the turn of the millennium. There's probably some truth to that. The reality is that initially in the 1990s, even when people are looking to China, they're looking at China as an investment destination. But by the 21st century, in the first decade, people are beginning to write about the tectonic shift that is taking place in the geoeconomic and increasingly geopolitical order of the world. So the quotes such as, uh, this is from the National Intelligence Council uh, survey mapping the global future of 2004. 
And it begins in the introduction by saying that at no point since the formation of the Western Alliance system in 1949 have the shape and nature of international alignments been in such a state of flux. The likely emergence of China and India, as well as others, as new major global players similar to the advent of a united Germany in the 19th century and a powerful United States in the early 20th century will transform the geopolitical landscape with impacts potentially as dramatic as those in the previous two centuries. These kinds of comments are becoming more and more prevalent in the mid-decade uh, mid of the 21st century. One of the quotes that's been often used by a number of scholars is the Larry Summers uh, comment, again uh, written sometime in the 2005 or so. And he starts out by saying that they call it the Industrial Revolution, which is in the 19th century, because for the first time in all of human history, standards of living rose at a rate where there were noticeable changes in standards of living in the human lifespan, changes of perhaps 50%. At current growth rates in Asia, and he's primarily referring to China and India, standards of living may rise 100-fold or 10,000% within a human lifespan. The rise of Asia and all that follows it will be the dominant story in history books written 300 years from now with the Cold War and the rise of Islam as secondary stories. So within the economic and political circles, this is in fact something that people are beginning to talk about. And of course, in Canada, even as late as uh, September 25th, 2012, your Minister of Foreign Affairs, Honorable John Baird, has made it very clear, which is in your uh, materials and uh, information coming from the Asia Pacific Foundation, that from Mumbai to Manila, you can feel the pulse of a region undergoing profound change. Canada must be a part of it. It is not a choice. It's not an option. It's a national imperative. Today, therefore, we are in a place where everybody recognizes that this shift, the tectonic shift that people were talking about in the 21st century, is beginning to be a reality. China today, as we know, is the second largest economy. Even in the current U.S. election, those of us who pay attention to foreign policy, it was rather disappointing that most of Asia was not really mentioned much, except for China. China is a threat. China is a competitor. China or India, to some extent, is outsourcing of jobs. But that's sort of where the discussion is currently. It is really important to remember that, yes, even in China and India, the economies are slowing down. There is no question. There's no question that there are social problems. There is no question that, in fact, this is not a straight line projection or that it is not just going to continue at the same pace that it has been in the last 20 years. However, by and large, we have to accept the fact that by the year 2050, if not before, more than 50% of the world's GDP will come from China and India alone. 
and more than 50% of the world's population already lives in that part of the world. Those two things, as my Chinese friends would say, it simply means we are back at the center stage again. Last 250 years were the exception. Or as Kishore Mabubani recently has said in Canada, that was the aberration. India and China coming online center stage may be more of a historical reality because it has been for a long time. We'll question that premise as we go forward, but that's, it's really worth remembering that with the caveat of problems, barriers, and challenges, the general direction has definitely moved in the direction to recognize that the geopolitical Euro-American axis will no longer be operative the way it has been for the last 250 years. What does that mean in terms of the role and power of culture in these two countries, as well as their positioning in the world? The reason why I think this is very important and how and I were just talking about it before, is that by and large, when people talk about geoeconomic and geopolitical rise of these two countries, it is often thought as if it's only about the last 30 years. That these millennial civilizations with 5,000 year history, it doesn't matter, that it's all about transaction of here and now. And at the same time, there is very little awareness that actually those things that come from 1,000 years ago may have some bearing in how these countries will behave in the global arena. And I think that increasingly within the two countries, there is also now a greater awareness of how arts and culture can play a role in both the projection of the country abroad, but also in how the country sees itself in its self-definition. And here I think China and India really bear an interesting uh, comparison and differences that are worth uh, thinking about. And I wanna go through this and then we'll get on to the slides in terms of how the artists are playing a role in this. So for example, I, if you just recently saw in the 18th National Party Congress, uh, one of the big speeches were from the Minister of Culture and Propaganda, uh, giving huge amount of kudos to President Hu Jintao because of the fact that in the last two years, President Hu has begun to really talk about the role of culture. As in a very uh, important essay that he wrote as well as his speech, and this was in fact in January 2012, but it began sometime in the fall of 2011, where uh, President Hu begins by saying that the overall strength of Chinese culture and its international influence is not commensurate with China's international status. Those of us who follow China closely, if in the early part of the 2000s, you talk to your intellectual friends and you would say, you know, China has arrived, it's at the center stage, what are you gonna do? They would say, no, 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 we have a long way to go, this is not really true, because we have to do much more internally. For him to say that it is not commensurate with China's international status 
he is now beginning to talk about the economic power of China and where does culture stand. He then goes on to say, and this is a very important but strong statement, where he goes on to say, we must clearly see that international hostile forces are intensifying the strategic plot of westernizing and dividing China. And ideological and cultural fields are the focal areas of their long-term infiltration. It is important, he says, to bolster the cultural security of China. In the 18th Party Congress, one of the things that people now talk about, especially the ministers and other people in the field of broadcasting and film and culture, is that culture is the lifeblood of a nation. The strength and international competitiveness of Chinese culture are an important indicator of China's power and prosperity in the renewal of the Chinese nation. What's important about all of this is that they also then go on to talk about how government is the one that's going to lead the charge. So it's about institutionalization of arts and culture that most of these statements are oriented towards. And I know that, that one of the talks you will hear is about how the artists are dealing with this notion of institutionalization of culture in China. I think what's very important is that within this very same speech just three days ago, um, there was a strong discussion about how there are now more than 2,000 museums with free admission, that cultural industries that really can spread China's influence abroad, sponsoring worthy productions, worthy I put in quotes, was going to be where the Chinese government was going to focus. Lots of things are privatized, but, and listen to these numbers, those of us who come from the United States, it's absolutely mind-boggling. But the government has set aside $1.2 billion just to support the arts and culture. What is the budget of NEA? Less than 100 million in the United States. So how are they going to support this? The line that comes up is that government will give guidance because guidance is the soul of these developments. And this is a quote. An insistence on, quote, political responsibility, social responsibility, and cultural responsibility. What is significant is that there is no mention of cultural creativity, contemporary arts, or where that scene is going to be. It is about how to institutionalize the arts production and culture production. I think part of this, and it's something for us to come back to when we will, is that in China, historically, there's a tremendous awareness of the power of visual arts. As early as in Yuan Dynasty in the 14th century, there were artists, literatus, who were putting their back against the Mongol emperors who had invaded China not to collaborate. 
So the idea that the visual image can be very powerful to subvert the political forces, as we have seen in the recent Ai Weiwei case and other, other issues that come up from time to time, the important thing is to recognize that the authorities understand the power of the arts. And therefore, what you deal with it and how you deal with it becomes an important part of the strategy of using culture also to project China's image ab abroad that is commensurate with China's international status as President Hu has quoted. There's a very different attitude towards visual arts and culture in India. Uh, interestingly, in the last election, when Prime Minister Manmohan Singh came back to power, he took on the portfolio as a cultural minister, at least for a couple of years. And as a result, in 2009, 2010, he began to talk about the power of arts and culture. But, and note the quote, because I think it's interesting how these two countries actually look at the asset they have in arts and culture that allows us to then think about where to place contemporary art in that context. So uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh in 2010 goes on to say, the world associates us with our cultural showpieces, our monuments, works of art, and historical remains. Many of these are lying in neglect. There's no reason why the National Museum in India or any of our premier museums should not be on par with the Smithsonian, the Hermitage, or the British Museum. Um, his focus then in that very speech is on how the arts describe and give voice to the plurality of Indian culture and the diversity of cultural expression was one of the key hallmarks of what Indian government would do to create policies to support the arts. He also then goes on to talk about how we seek not only to strengthen and promote cultural diversity, but also learn from countries without and from the artistic forces within. That very idea, something that Gandhi talked about at the time of independence, that India seeks to open its windows to the world without losing its soul. It's that idea of interaction with the world rather than just projecting India one way that is completely different from where President Hu Jintai was, as I mentioned to you. I think in both cases, in India as well, there is a tremendous awareness of the flourishing of the contemporary art scene, but there's also an understanding that this is a private matter, the government need not get involved except for a few grants that they give to the artists and some art schools. And that part of it is that compared to even the theater where there's a lot more money for emerging theater artists, visual artists are seen as having a commercial viability in rising economy of India today. Therefore, there isn't really a need for the same kind of intervention except for the uh, National Gallery of Modern Art, which is just tripled its exhibition space, uh, I'm sorry to say, without a huge amount of forethought on how to use this for especially the contemporary young artists who are uh, very active in India. That's not to say that in India also sometimes art doesn't get hijacked for political purposes. And it has happened numerous times 
But the difference between India and China, as you know well, is that in India, when that has happened, for example, it happened with late MF Hussein's work, there's a huge protest. People fought. People tried to do something about it, tried to get him back. Unfortunately, he passed away, but he was actually then had a ceremony in India itself. So the point I'm trying to make here is that there are different trajectories in terms of how the government are thinking of their role in the contemporary art scene. It also really is important to remember, for example, that the whole 798 art scene, some of you know that in Beijing, all of that really developed not so much with the support of the government as much as with the private initiative, which then the government realized was a good thing for China's international image, and then there was another problem with the economic conditions, which we'll again come back to. So now, let's really think about the third component of this, which is that economic rise has taken off, the government is really looking at its dimension in a political arena, how to use the arts and culture for both its own development and also for its external perception. The reality is that the art making never stopped, even if the country opened up in India in 91 or China in 79, artists were making stuff, as artists always do. And that they actually often have thought about dealing with their current situation and giving voice that sometimes can actually project forward into the future. And that's one of the things that I think we need to think about as how to understand power of the arts. So, when we come to China, we always, you know, the general rather uh, discursive and simplistic statement is that, of course, China was closed in the uh, post-49, you know, U.S. didn't even recognize China for so long, and that during the Cultural Revolution, it was only all the political propaganda and the kind of work that was in the service of the nation and the communist vision of Chairman Mao. All of that is true. There is also some notion that, therefore, there's a complete break from the past. There is no look at uh, the traditions that came from before, and it all is looking towards a Russianized model of, of painting. That actually is not so true. The other general uh, axiom that people have often thought about is that there's a complete break between this work and what comes after. Uh, um, so that whether it's young Mao and the kind of ink tradition that actually came into play for some of the early uh, Cultural Revolution work was not always thought of as a major, major trend. And yet, as Asia, at the Asia Society in our uh, Art and Culture Revolution show that uh, our colleague, uh, my colleague Melissa Chu, along with, in fact, some of the colleagues right from here in Canada, developed, uh, there are a number of artists, such as Xu Bing, a major star in the contemporary art scene today, who have often talked about the fact that, in fact, the Cultural Revolution was a very important time for him to find his own voice when he was out in the countryside, unencumbered by the kind of rigid discipline that would have been in the academy, it allowed him to explore himself in a way that actually was the basis of the work that he did afterwards. And so within the development of the contemporary art scene also, I think sometimes we have a tendency to only look at the last 
10 years, 15 years, rather than to go back into the past. And it's important to recognize that there are some connections. And then, so by the time in the late 80s, when Deng Xiaoping has already established a reform, things have opened up, people are going back to school, and artists like Xu Bing develop really a way to think about how to position China's traditions into the future. And Book from the Sky is one of those amazing, amazing works um, that in itself had tremendous political context when it was first shown in 87, alongside lots and lots of oil paintings and things that people were looking at in the West, like surrealism, Dadaism, and all the isms of the West that co got compressed into one decade in China. Um, Xu Bing comes with this piece whereby he creates Ming Dynasty style hand uh, woven and stitched books that are down below along with the block printing of major, major uh, Chinese calligraphy at the top, all of which is primarily nonsensical with not a word that means anything. When it was first shown, the Chinese government leaders hailed it as a major, major breakthrough in Chinese expression because it didn't look like Western stuff. That this was the way Chinese contemporary art would go. They also talked about it as how this was a critique of not understanding one's own past that was going to be necessary as you go into the future, and that was going to be one of the things that was going to change in the new China. Post 89, post Tiananmen Square, the same work is derided as being not good, not supportive of the way one should, and, and rather seen as, as um, contrary to what China needs to do. And that kind of a shift really begins with the very first China avant-garde show after the opening of China, which is in the spring of 89. Um, and this avant-garde show really is where major artists like Xu Bing, lots of the stars that we hear about today were shown. And it was actually then with this very gunshot that were fired at the installation as part of the installation uh, and a performing art, a performative art practice that that show was shut down. This is in the spring of 89, months before Tiananmen event. So you could say the art were presaging actually the kind of uh, uncomfortability around freedom of expression and the kind of new developments that had occurred in China at the time. The Tiananmen events happen and Post-89, there is a kind of a new way of looking at art. And it is really this work, starting in the early 1990s, some recreation of the work that done in the 80s, that we have come to appreciate as really the, uh, the kind of fundamental uh, forms of contemporary Chinese art. So that Zhang Peli, who, did, uh, who is a major artist and now uh, amazingly is completely part of the system as being one of the heads of one of the major academies in China. 
where he created this work um, using one of the major Chinese commentators on television who had announced and talked about the Tiananmen events on Chinese TV to use her to simply read all of the different names for water from one of the Chinese dictionaries. And that notion of nonsensical words, ways that you hear something on television, do you believe it, do you not believe it, was very much behind this iconic work now that uh, really gave voice to the beginning of perhaps one might call cynicism that often people have looked at, whether it is uh, performing arts, performative arts, or installation. And that idea of Mao Pop, cynicism of what is the new ism in China, which is as much about Coca-Cola and commercialization as it is about the communist ideology, are the kind of things that the artists were already picking up and doing this kind of work in the early 1990s. And there are other artists such as Gu Wenda who actually use the idea of nonsensical calligraphy that Xu Bing was doing, as well as Gu Wenda, as well as Tsai Guo Chang, believe it or not, uh, to create things where China could see itself in a larger global context. Artists are doing this long before the political leaders of the country are talking about it. And this particular work that uh, Wenda Gu did for the Asia Society, major exhibition, Inside Out, um, the exhibition that we began working on in 1993, and then finally it happened in 1998, uh, where he uses the idea of calligraphy from all different parts of Asia, making some sensical, some nonsensical characters, words, based on all the human hair that he collected from all different parts of New York, where he now makes his home, and actually have a dinner banquet where everybody sits down, but they're sitting on the image of the sky and the forbidden city. So this idea of forbidden city, China at the center of the universe, and at the same time, China at the center of the universe that actually can't connect to the world becomes part of these statements. Again, I think what's important about this work is that artists are beginning to question, reflect the rapid rise, and at the same time question what that does to the artistic premise. The big artist of Inside Out was uh, Zhang Huan. And as I was saying to Hank Bolt, one of the amazing things about the show was that John Huang, whose work now you have right here in Toronto, we'll see that briefly. Uh, this is the first time he left China. And this to raise one meter to the lake was again the statement about the immigrant culture of China, the workers who were coming, John Huang himself living in one of those poor immigrant villages at the time, and then taking a picture as all these hundreds of people were in that very polluted lake uh, near Beijing actually the water rose. And at the same time, it's a statement about a kind of statements that Communist Party used to make about how collectively, if we come together, we can raise the level of water, level of civilization, the kind of collective effort. He turns that idea on its head. 
What was interesting about that show um, when we began to work on it is that at the Asia Society, we do policy work, we do business work, we also have arts and culture side. And our big question was, how do we actually talk to the Chinese government about this show? Because, and the reason why I think it's important to recognize is as late as in the mid-90s, the government had not really recognized officially that there was a whole big contemporary art scene that was burgeoning, and in fact, 798 was just beginning to happen at the time. Um, whether they make it an official part, do we get the permission? Artists were all very clear that if there was such a thing, they would never get the permission to leave the work. Most of the works that came from Beijing came as literally trade items. No recognition that these were big works of art. That scene changed dramatically in the next three, four, five years. So the idea here was that the political context, the economic rise and artistic developments were actually not completely in sync. In India, compared to China, there isn't a big break. There isn't a cultural revolution. There's actually, as is true of India always, there aren't huge revolutions, even though independence movement could be seen as that kind of a revolution. But it's a debate, discussions, open ideas, whereby a group of artists post-47 and independence, on the one hand, are talking about India's place in the world, being much more progressive about connecting to the world, and actually call themselves the progressives. These are the ones like M.F. Hussein, whose work you see here, or F.M. Souza. These are groups of artists who come together to say we don't want to be bound by a nationalist agenda. We want to think about ourselves in connecting to the rest of the world. And that is in direct contrast to another group of artists, such as Nandalal Bose, who is much more involved in trying to revive the Indian tradition. Where does that go? How would we connect? And all of them are very aware of the sayings of the great, late Rabindranath Tagore, the late uh, Nobel laureate in literature, who also, by the way, was an amazing artist whose show we just showed, in fact, uh, a year ago last fall. And it was Tagore, compared to Gandhi, who actually talked about what he called universal brotherhood. And he emphasized the capacity of visual arts, particularly, and creativity of the artist to transcend cultures and boundaries unlimited by, and not limited rather by, the linguistic limitations, which is what his first uh, love was, to at the same time represent the specificity of a culture. So this idea of transcendence and being of a place was the power of art that he encouraged at Shantiniketan, the school he founded, to say, let us not be limited by the nationalist discourse, but let us also not think that you have to ape the West. You should look East, look West, wherever the ideas are, and that is what you should really think about in terms of the creativity and making of art. So his own work, as you see here in this self-portrait, almost has a kind of a German expressionist feel to it. 
completely different from anything that was going on in India at the time, but tried to get to something very, very personal. And most Indian artists, even in the post-independence era, often are aware of that capacity and power of art to try to go in between, even though the artistic world of India remained quite insular for most of the 70s and the 80s. By the time you come to the early 1990s, the world has changed again. It is less to do with economic opening up of China or India and more to do with the fact that many artists in 70s and 80s actually went abroad to study. Engaged with the work everywhere, Bupen Kakar, late Bupen Kakar now, uh, became very friends, uh, friendly with uh, Howard Hodgkins and other artists who were coming and going and then creating a work that's as much about an influence from Howard as it is also from um, other Western artists and Indian tradition of the kind of folk tradition coming out of Eastern India. And then you have an artist like Ravinder Reddy who really creates a sensation when it is first shown using the idea of this kind of severed heads portraits in uh, museums as an iconic figure but turning that idea on its head by doing an average woman from South India who then has this idea of a startled connection to the rest of the world. This also happened to be from uh, one of the first shows we did, which actually then went to Vancouver, but also went to Taipei and other parts of, of the world as well. But when it first opened in New York, and I'll never forget it, it was front page of the New York Times Arts and Leisure section, full page with ready head almost covering the entire page. It had never happened before that such contemporary Asian art things could be actually seen in a mainstream American newspaper. But Holland Cotter, who reviewed that show, and this is a preview article actually, um, he begins the article in this manner. In quote, contemporary art in India, there is no contemporary art in India. There can be no contemporary art in India. An academic friend tartly reminded me a few years ago, he says, how could an avant-garde art exist anywhere in the timeless cultures of what we monolithically call Asia? If it did, it couldn't be any good. Too Western, too Asian, or too little of one or the other. Forget it is basically the message. Similarly, about the same time in the early 90s, there was a show of contemporary Japanese art you would have thought was much farther along at the time, right? Because people knew about a number of other Japanese artists. And this is Peter Sheldahl, another major uh, art critic. And this is about the exhibition of uh, contemporary Japanese art after 1945. And he goes on to talk about, and this is a quote, the pain confronting culture as alien to the Western minds as Japan's increases as its forms converge with ours. Now, we must deal with the screechy feedback of our own influence, which can make a Gutai abstraction or a new Dara Japanese artist seem at once 
childishly obvious in style and utterly opaque in nuance of intention. Recognizing the what and the how of many a work at a glance, I grasp for the why and I come up empty. Think about that statement. This is at a time where the art world hasn't quite caught up with the fact that the economic stuff is moving along. Essentially, I always say that when he says, recognizing the what and the how of many a work at a glance, I grasp for the why, and I come up empty. It doesn't ever occur to him that he comes up empty because he doesn't know. It doesn't occur to him that it requires more work for something that looks superficially like something you have seen before. That recognition of that which I know requires that you look further, not stop. That kind of a conversation, that kind of statement will never occur today. That's the difference between the external perception of contemporary Asian art, China, India, even Japan, then and now. And the reason I believe it would not happen again is because of the awareness of the economic and political might of these two countries, now our mainstream knowledge. So people are beginning to look at this in a different way than where it might have been before. And so in India, what happens is that the situation is much more fluid. There are artists who look to the past, look to the future, use contemporary abstractions, but because it doesn't have a complete break or a seeming break from the past, when the reviews of Indian art occur, they often are seen still as a bit more, shall I say, retardataire. Not as avant-garde as the Chinese artists. Some people have said that it's because in the Western imagination, that whole idea of artists being pushing against the limits of the system, breaking the boundaries is so much more privileged than artists who continue along a path. So it has much to do with the Western privileging of certain kinds of value system that we attach to how we look at this work, whereas in India, many of these artists have huge domestic markets, which is also another thing that's a real difference between India and China, and that is that Contemporary artists in India have an Indian market in India and a domestic and a diaspora market abroad. Much of that work is for modern masters. KG is one of them, but the others are like Hussein, Raza, Souza, all masters from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Contemporary artists now are in a slightly different arena, whereas in China, a huge, huge, huge domestic market, in fact, uh, now bordering in one of the largest markets, <coughs> but all for the 20th century ink masters, not for so much the current avant-garde artists that we all hear about. Nilima Sheikh, who actually is one of those few minority artists in India who are really trying and have been working very deeply 
into looking to India's past is like a Nandalal Bose tradition to revive, but creating a much more of a contemporary nuanced way of looking at that world. So that brings us to the last section, and we'll do this very quickly, is that in the globalizing arena today in the contemporary art world, it is completely expected now that any biennales, documenta, triennales, there would be major artists from Asia. You would not see one of those shows as you might have 20 years ago without those great artists. So one of them, for example, Subodh Gupta, who was in the Venice Biennale last time, um, is now one of the darlings from the Indian contemporary art scene, seen in many, many different parts of the world, covered by and um, represented by major prestigious gallery in London. This particular work is a kind of a head that actually is based on all kinds of utensils, uh, village utensils that he has been playing with for a long time. And one of his early works, uh, which was in one of the other exhibitions that we did at the Asia Society, uh, was very much focused on the transformation of India from somebody who comes out of a rural life into being uh, very much a contemporary star. And this is his own trajectory, this triptych on the one hand, the brown sequence that you see right here. I'm afraid you can't see it very well, but we'll try. This section is an LED screen down here that says Bihari, because he himself is from Bihar. And in Delhi, where he now lives, the minute you say Bihari, everybody thinks you're a villager. It's literally same as Dehati, which means of a rural area. And it is done with a cow dung. And so this is the early Subodh and um, how he sees himself coming out of this idea of bicycles and milk cans that would be ever present in a village life to his transformation as this slothful contemporary uh, lad, if you will, um, showing off. Um, but it's that idea of transformation that actually often appeals to people as much as it's also true that this references to the changing dynamics of India that says something about India, but it also is using the language very much that's part of a global scale and a global artistic world. Nilima, uh, Nalini Malani, another artist from India who is now seen in many, many, many international art scenes almost everywhere. I think the point I'm trying to make here is that now these artists are represented by major Western galleries. Their work is being picked up for huge amounts of money. I actually um, just came back from Abu Dhabi uh, where Subodh's work, uh, smaller scale than this, was represented by a major um, gallery in London selling for millions of dollars. Uh, this is true of other artists as well. And it is particularly true of the Chinese artist, John Huang today, who was almost not known in the West in the mid 90s, is now one of the big international stars, uh, doing huge amount of work all over the world, not the least of which is, of course, his major installation right here in Toronto. 
Sai Guo Chang, he has commitments everywhere, all over the world, now so much that you have to wait in line for three, four years before you can get your own commission of his explosive drawings as this was done in the museum in Qatar, in Doha, where he created this explosive image with the calligraphy that is as much a part of his own tradition in China as he now is playing with uh, the script in Arabic as well. What this suggests is that contemporary Chinese and Indian artists have arrived on the global scene just as much as contemporary China and India in economic way have arrived on the global scene. These artists are commanding high prices, attracting major shows all over the world, in major museums around the world, and the question arises, are they now ready to supplant the so-called Euro-American hegemony of the contemporary art scene? The reality is that much of the support for their art comes from the commercial establishments in the West. Are they able to do this without that support? Likely not. At the same time, it is with the awareness of the economic might of these countries and their political influence that people are paying attention to this work in a way that might not have been the case in the 80s or even in the 90s. When we look at this, there is that reference to Kishore Mahbubani when he did his interview right here in Toronto when he was asked and he said, as you will all recall in his quote, and he says, for Mr. Mabubani, this is from this article, is that actually the hardest thing of all to accept maybe a world in which the United States and its Western allies are no longer the sole or even the dominant global powers. And Kishore goes on to say he's a very good friend, We've talked about this many times, and he would say, well, this is simply the world writing itself. China and India were, after all, the largest economies on the planet for centuries prior to the Industrial Revolution. Indeed, it is thought that circa 1800, 50% of world's GDP came from China and India. So, indeed, last 250 years could be seen as the aberration or the exception. And he goes on to say that the rise of the West was a historical aberration, and all historical aberrations come to an end. I'm not so sure. The reason why I'm not so sure is because rise of India and China is also in the context of globalization that also creates a more level playing field. The dizzying pace with which we connect all over the world is unlike any other time. It is no longer about a zero-sum game. One rises, another one falls. We might feel threatened because shift is inevitable and the shift is palpable. But does that shift mean that if China rises, America must fall? I think the artist actually paved a way to think about this in a different way. 
And I want to end with this particular work, which is also by Saigyo Chan. This work is called Borrowing Your Enemy's Arrows or To Borrow Your Enemy's Arrows. This is a work that was commissioned, or rather, uh, when we did the first major exhibition of contemporary Chinese art in uh, 1998, when it opened, um, Tsai, we just said, do you want to do something? He said, yes, I want to make this work, and it was his idea. Um, those of you who know the Chinese history and, and uh, very important historical tales will know that this is a very important story in the Chinese imagination that goes back to the warring state period in the third century BC or before, whereby there is this army general who is fighting another group and he realizes that he actually doesn't have enough resources. So he takes his ship out in the fog with this rope made from hay wrapped all around the boat. As the enemy attacks, all of the bows that are going, arrows rather, that are going in get stuck in this boat. He turns right around and he takes all those arrows and then uses those arrows to attack the enemy. And he did this big boat coming from his hometown in China with a big flag of China and this was hung um, in a major way. Now I'm very proud to say that we commissioned it and it was then purchased by the Museum of Modern Art as Sai's very first piece of acquisition by uh, the modern. Many people looked at this and they say, this is ominous. This is China beating us at, beating us at our own game. It is really about taking our arrows and projecting it back onto us. And we had a long discussion with Sai about this. And he said, the whole point of this is interconnection. We can learn from you, take it on, and put it into a new context. It is no longer, he said, this is what artists do. It's something that Arthur Danto has said uh, early on, and that is that artists look for sources, ideas, and elements any place in the world. He said, this is Arthur Danto, that artists look at weeds between sidewalks and make it into a garden. It doesn't matter where those weeds come from. And Sai was looking at that very idea. But he also, in fact, has talked a lot about the fact that it is also about the capacity of the art to connect with parody. Without the privileging of up and down, good or bad, which is where much of the non-Western artists have felt for a long time because of the Euro-American presence the way it is. So we might actually say that in going forward in this globalizing world, perhaps artists have a way to think about that new world in which it is not a zero-sum game. It is not that because of Psy, Damien Hirst is not gonna be seen. The reality is that we might for the first time by inclusion of major artists from India, China, and other parts of the non-Western world, we might create a level playing field in looking at the work that both has a capacity to transcend cultures and to say something specific about a place. It is that reality 
of interconnectivity and cultural specificity that we need to have as we think about this new global world that we all live in. It is no longer important to be worried or scared about rise of China or India, but it is much more significant to understand the millennial civilizations through their art forms and the creativity that then puts them on par with everything that we have all learned and been taught in the last 250 years. So I hope that this kind of rambling thought gives you some sense of how we might look at the intersection of culture, politics, art, and creativity, and where it might go as we go forward. The lines and the journey is murky, but definitely worth going on because it's pretty exciting. Thank you. Sorry, I went a little longer, but let's have definitely have some questions. We have microphones on both sides. Please identify yourself and wait till the mic comes to you because this conversation is being recorded. Not for any other use, I promise you. Yes. A hand, anyone? No questions because there's still no, no, no there's a hand in the back. Okay. And then let's come forward here. Oh, and then uh, we have another question in the back there. Yeah, oh, please. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I had trouble sitting through it, I have to confess. My name is John Carsonite. I'm uh, of Dutch origin. I was born in the Netherlands. So I've always had some awareness of art in a way perhaps that my fellow Canadians don't necessarily all share. But I've also spent some time in India, which was a transformative experience for me. And I appreciate that there is a massive transformation taking place on a material level at least, and economically in the world and politically, with the shift of economic bias towards Asia. But I'm convinced, and have been for some time, that this transformation, material transformation, cannot become profoundly meaningful without a recognition, not only of the cultural and artistic component, but of the spiritual component. And in the frenzied commentary about the economic developments of the past 15 years, it has repeatedly and, and continues to break my heart that there is no conversation or recognition of that spiritual component that is above all most emphatic in India. Uh can I just actually tell you that this, what you have said, you're a man after my own heart because I'm actually finishing a book and I hope to finish the first draft by the end of December is precisely about this. So I didn't discuss that today because my 
brief was to really look at contemporary art and the intersection of the economic and the political. But I completely agree with you that it's not even just spiritual qua spiritual, but spiritual and aesthetic and philosophical attitudes is where India has a unique contribution to make in the world that if India only goes after what I call being a GDP junkie, the best it will be is a pale reflection of the West. It is in those arena, and yet in India, people either take it for granted and say, yeah, 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 you know, Bollywood is there, yoga is there, it does its stuff, and there you are. There is so much of a deprivileging of studying of the humanities, philosophy, culture, religion, that there is an assumption that we've survived for 5,000 years, it's going to be there for another 5,000. No understanding that the onslaught of things all around us is completely different in nature. But having said that, I would be the first to say that to only go back to the past would be also nostalgic and retardataire. So you have to think about its relevance in the 21st century in the larger arena. But that idea of privileging, the sole privileging of the economic model and economic development is problematic for both countries, precisely because both countries are millennial civilizations with deep history and culture. India is a bit more fortunate because it hasn't had so many fits and starts. So I agree with you. So if you're uncomfortable sitting through this, I apologize, but that was my brief. So thank you. Yes. Hi there, my, my name's Jordan Dupuis, and being completely honest, I actually work for the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's okay. So, so I was one of the people who raised the policy hand right, good. At, at, at the start of, of, of your lecture. Um, as part of the national conversation on Asia, we've, um, we've launched an online conversation today to coincide with your lecture, which deals with, uh, which deals with, with questions around the rise of Asian art and social and politi uh, political change in Asia. So, so my question is, is, um, is the commercial viability of Asian art in the West, does that feed into the processes of social and political change in Asia and also in the West? So it's, it's, yeah. I, I, that's a, it's a kind of a complex question, actually, because uh, in India, there's been a commercial viability for contemporary art always even before the opening of the economy. And there is still that market. But what has happened is that the kind of crazy investment, art for investment mentality that happened in the early part of the 21st century with the 2008 crash, that whole thing kind of collapsed. People were investing in art literally as an index fund. And this was also happening with Chinese art, but in the West, not in China. I think what's interesting for both of these countries, and that goes back to the first question, there is a group of artists who some people would feel, whether they're big stars or not, that a lot of artists are now being completely co-opted into the economic system because there's so much money. You know, today in India, lots of parents think that their kid going to an art school is a good thing because he'd make good money, you know. Um, 
there is also, at the same time, a group of artists, especially in India, who are really challenging this, not to be part of the commercial establishment. But it's very difficult for them to find a voice because there are not enough, both China and India, even with 2,000 museums that China is building, neither one of them have a mature ecology of the art system. And what I mean by that is that in the, in the United States, in Canada, in England, and other European countries, you have the academy, you have the not-for-profit space, you have dealers, you have auction houses, you have museums. All of these create a system whereby multiple voices can be heard in a different way. That is not as easy in China or in India. In India, mainly because there's not enough investment, except for some private museums that are coming up, the Chinese are making huge investment, but not to support contemporary art in this way. So I think there are artists who are also really trying to give voice to their concerns for this sole economic um, imperative of the two countries. But they come out in a different way. In China, there's a fair amount of self-censorship that occurs all the time. So some of you will recall when the Ai Weiwei case uh, was coming up, major artists, and I won't name names, refused to comment because they are prominent figures in China. Um, and this creates an issue, and I think that that this 18th Party Congress actually kind of, people are looking for, is this gonna be some opening up, political reform, what's it gonna mean? I recall, as those of you come from the policy side, you know, 15 years ago, everybody used to say, I'll remember the village election, things are really gonna open up, China is really gonna go through the political transformation of opening up much more in terms of its uh, governmental process. Hasn't really happened. So, I think the political systems definitely determine in some ways how the artistic expression is supported and perceived. And that is two very different trajectories for these two countries. In the external world, Chinese artists are in a much, much higher market trajectory than Indians are. And that goes back to what I was suggesting earlier is because there's a certain kind of Western prejudice we have about what constitutes avant-garde. I hope that answers some parts of your question. Thank you. Yes. Hi, my name's Heather. Um, I apologize I wasn't able to um, identify the gender of some of your artists, but I was just wondering what role do women play in contemporary art in India and China? Uh, very, very good question. Um, and I will start historically when we were doing these exhibitions. When we did Inside Out, the contemporary Chinese show that we were working on in the mid-90s, early 90s, amazingly, I asked the curator who was doing the show, and there were very, very few women artists out of China. Out of the 45-some artists we had, maybe we had three, that's because we really pushed for it. And one of them, Lin Tiamao, who is married to another major Chinese artist. Asian Society currently has a one-person show of her work, and I think it's a fabulous show, so you should all go see it in New York. 
In India, it's a completely opposite situation. There are many, 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 many women artists, and they have been there for a long time. So Nalini Malani, whose work I show, Nilima Sheikh, they're all women. Um, when we did Traditions Tensions, we had many Indian artists, and then when we did Edge of Desire later on, again, I think 30, 40% maybe were women artists. Um, but in India, I dare to say that majority of these artists are also urban and often from upper classes. What that says is that gender and class and caste orientation really plays in favor of women. And that subtlety is quite different from the more patriarchal culture of China. Uh, India is patriarchal too, but in a very different way because it has many role models. I always say that there are no other countries in the world that have Durga as a goddess, you know, multiple heads, hands, killing the males, you know, if that's what you need. Uh, you won't have that in China. But many of the Chinese artists, women artists, would say that cultural revolution made it possible for more women to be in positions of influence than it might have been otherwise. And that's another side effect of cultural revolution that we have to kind of look at. So the bottom line is that today there are more women artists than there were 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago in China. But still compared to India, it is never at the same level. Hi, Dr. Desai. My name is Rui. I'm a graduate student at the Monk School of Global Affairs at University of Toronto. Thank you for a great lecture. It was very fascinating. I really enjoyed it. So you were just talking about the Cultural Revolution and how that has um, sometimes inspired creativity in people in, with artists like Xu Bing. And I find it interesting because Cultural Revolution was a time where um, artistic works were majorly for domestic consumption. There were a lot of censorship uh, going on, like with Mao's wife, for example, who approved all the artistic works before they were published. So I was just wondering um, what your thoughts are on going forward um, with the economic rise of China, how that would impact the way that they portray themselves um, on the international scene, because right now they're more outward looking. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, again, a really a great question. I think one of the things about Xu Bing and some of those artists who came of age during the Cultural Revolution when they were banished out in the countryside is that, in fact, Xu Bing would say that he and others like him were doing things for their own edification. It was not for anybody else. It was not for the state. It wasn't for the consumption somewhere else. These were doodles. These were things that they did in their notebooks. These were, there's a group of artists who did it just to share it with each other. So there was that undercurrent of doing something in a personal way, which, by the way, is really not that different from the group of Wenren who in 17th century China, in Qing court, in Ming court, would have actually done it for themselves. It wasn't for a commercial reason. So there was that element of creating art to share, to connect at a personal level. Even as early as in the early 90s, and some of you will recall if you were in China then, it's a lot, there was something called apartment art. Artists were doing stuff in their own little places to share it with each other after Tiananmen, not in the public arena. 
So there was that undercurrent, which was not about commercial. It was really about self-expression and sharing it with each other. I think that that is the flip side of the first question you were asking, and that is that when the economic uh, imperative is so strong, everything gets co-opted under that. So where is the space for this kind of personal expression, which is a question in a way you were asking? There is some work like that, but not a whole lot, because the money is so big. And that is another kind of co-option where one could say that money corrupts in some ways. But that's also part of the art history. Let's not forget, I mean, it was true for Rembrandt and Michelangelo too. Thank you. We're almost out of time. Last question. One yes. last question. Oh, hi, uh, my name is Ashwin. Um, I'm just wondering if, um, and you've touched on this with the other questions and, and in the lecture as well, if, the, uh, if the, the rise of China and India, I mean, is the flip side of the story true as well? Has there been a decline of the influence of Western culture uh, in these countries, um, especially in the artistic fields as, you know, uh, over the past 10 or 20 years? I, a very good question. Um, what's interesting is that there's a kind of confidence that artists have in both of these countries today that is no longer about influence, under the influence of, or any of that. They will take what they can, wherever they can. If it is about something from their own place, that's fine. If it's somewhere else, that's okay too. And I think that confidence is quite different from that Holland Carter quote that I was um, showing you. Even in India and China, in the 80s, there was a lot of this discussion of, oh, is this just a provincial work, reflection of something else over there, because you're all trying to ape the West. Today, even if you do take something from the West, it's like, so what? I'll do what I want. There's a completely different kind of an attitude, and a desire of acceptance is very different. I'm gonna do what I can, and yes, I want to be a documenter, I want to be a biannual, but you know what? I also have a market. So there is something that's different, and I think it's that confidence that is part and parcel of the global presence of these two countries in the economic arena that I do think makes a little bit of a difference. But it's also something to do with the market is opened up, the ways of looking at the world is opened up, but there are also lots of scholars and other people looking at this. So much so that I am somebody who has been seen as you know, promoting the cause of contemporary art in the West, from Asia. I've done it for 25 years. Now, I'm really worried about the rest of 5,000 years of history. And that goes back to your question. That today, in the United States, Close to 78% of all graduate students wanting to study Asian art are all wanting to do contemporary art. And I'm saying, what? What happened to the 4,000 years, you know, over there? I mean, I myself was trained in that. My dissertation is in, in early Indian art. But the point is that it's almost like it's too sexy. And I worry about that. And that is a piece that I think we all have to keep thinking about, is that how does the past and the present come together 
what is that deepening of the connection or the relationship or fissure that exists? And that's a question that don't get asked enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. That, that was an excellent talk, and you're quite right. A huge topic to try and get into an hour, and you've left me wanting to know much more. I loved, by the way, what she said about openness. When you talked about India being sort of open to the world and it being a two-way thing and not losing your soul, uh, losing its soul, I, I think that's something we could apply to the AGO, actually, that that's, you know, openness is, is a very desirable thing. And by the way, if you enjoyed this, you might like, on March 15th of next year, we have Mami Kataoka, and several times tonight, Ai Weiwei's exhibition, Ai Weiwei's been mentioned. So I'm very delighted to say that next summer we have, according to what, his exhibition is coming here next August, but on March 15th, again with Canadian Arts and the Asia Society, we, we're presenting Mami Kataoka, talking about contemporary art of Japan. So please come back. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.